Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. Robert McFarlane is an explorer and a linguist of landscape, and I have loved his writing for years. His book, Underland, A Deep Time Journey, is an odyssey full of surprises through caves and catacombs under land and under cities, under forests and the meltwater of Greenland. Since before we were homo sapiens, he writes, humans have been seeking out spaces of darkness in which to find and make meaning. Darkness in the natural world and in human life, he suggests, is a medium of vision and descent a movement toward revelation. In a moment in which a new relationship to the ground we stand on has become a civilizational calling, Robert McFarlane's way of seeing the world, at once scholarly and playful, literary and enchanting, refreshes and motivates in a most life-giving way. Look at the gift of being now. Look at the astonishing responsibility of legacy-leaving. Uh, there is one image at the heart, as it were, of, of Underland and of the Underland, which is the hand, the opened palm, the stretched fingers. And that, that we know first as, in a way, the first mark of art, that the maker would, would place their hand on the cave wall and then take a mouthful of ochre, red ochre often, and then spit the dust against the hand and then pull the hand away and say, so you, you leave the ghost print. And for me, that hand of, that open hand that is reaching across time, that is pressing against rock, but leaning also into the future, but also the hand of, of help and of collaboration. And I found it everywhere. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Robert McFarlane is a fellow at the University of Cambridge. His many books include Mountains of the Mind and The Lost Words. We spoke in 2019. Let's just plunge in. You know, the, you, there's this sentence you have. Um, for nearly two decades, I have been writing about the relationships of landscape and the human heart. And I, you know, I just find that such an intriguing way for you to describe your focus and that, that intersection. And I, I wonder, you know, how would you... How would you trace the earliest, deepest roots of this? And then, I, and even <laughs> as I as I wrote that question, I realized that's kind of an underland metaphor. Um, but like the deepest roots of this orientation in your earliest life, in the in the background of your life and childhood. That 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 is a a, a searching question and and a very good one for it. And I think whenever. Whenever we find a route and follow it back, we, we'll think we've reached its end and it will branch off again and, mm. and surprise us. But I guess if I were to follow the first route back, it would, it would take me into the mountains mm. that I didn't live in, but I did in a sense grow up in. And those were the mountains of the Cairngorms in the northeast of Scotland, where my, uh, my grandparents lived for many decades. And... That's really where I walked into landscape for the first time. And I have some pristinated memories from those places mm -hmm. where everything else from those years, those early years, is a mist. I can't remember anything 
from my Nottinghamshire childhood, but I can remember picking up a, a roe deer's antler that was as exotic as coral to me from mm. the side of a highland river. So I think that the power of that place, uh, those Arctic mountains of Britain, they, uh, they grooved deep into me. And I also was intrigued to see somewhere a mention that your father that you grew up in coal mining country and that your father was a lung doctor. And that, yeah. you know, that juxtaposition also seemed to me to be at that point between landscape and the human heart. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, well, that's a very, I hadn't thought of it like that. Um, mm. But you're, you're right. Um, it was a way that I began to look inside people, as it were. He would mm. bring these x-rays home of people's lungs, um, confidentially, obviously, not not disclosing yeah, yeah. anything. But he would hold them up against the window as a light box. And we would, my brother and I would see into this huge space of the human lung. Mm. And he would show us the spotting that showed, you know, black lung or silicosis. And he would just talk about what had happened to the people who were working almost under our feet, and right. the happiest person I knew when I was growing up was a coal miner who was no longer a coal miner. And he taught me how to whistle. Because <laughs> uh, right. he loved being in the sun. Uh, so, yeah, so I, as I said to you before we began this, the, the official interview, um, I have been reading you for years and kind of the sweep of your writing and exploring. And I think you said it this way some in another interview that you're the gradient of your body of work has been tending downwards <laughs> because you began writing about mountains yeah. and mountains of the mind. And then there were the valleys and moors and wild places. And then there's traversing yeah. the world on foot in the old ways. And now you have gone down to the worlds beneath our feet. And you said, we know so little of the worlds beneath our feet. And I think just naming that, not hmm. something that we even think about how little we know of the worlds beneath our feet. They they are dark places in 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 several senses. That's I, I sometimes say to my children. We we walk on this thin crust above this raging space of life and matter in in all its vibrancy and and fury, and we know nothing of it. Our sight stops at our toes. It stops at ground level, and sight is so bound up with modern ways of knowing. We can look up and see literally trillions of miles. We can see light coming from mm. stars across the universe, across the galaxy. But we look down and we, we can't see beyond the grass or the tarmac. Yeah. And you went to such an unexpected array of places, <laughs> right? Beneath that, that thin surface beyond which we can't see. I mean, it, it was really stunning. I don't, I don't know exactly what I expected when I opened the book, but, uh, you know, I think I expected the roots of trees, right? I didn't hmm. expect caves and a dark matter laboratory hmm. below the ground in Yorkshire and, and this subterranean alternative universe in beneath <laughs> Paris and, <laughs> right? And burial chambers in Finland for high-level nuclear waste. And then all the way through all, all your adventures, there's also this existential and elemental echo to the physical act of going huh. downwards and into the dark, right? And you, you, huh. know, you say, and, and, um, 
you know, that since we, before we were Homo sapiens, humans have been seeking out spaces of darkness in which to find and make meaning, and mm. that there's something seemingly paradoxical that darkness might be a medium of vision, and mm. that descent may be a movement towards revelation. And as you mm. describe all of your adventures, also you also, even though that is true, that there's something strangely life-giving about that descent. But <laughs> but it you over and over again not just thought about but experienced how counterintuitive it is to make yeah. that downwards move. Yeah, you uh, often uh, your mind is screaming at you not to enter this space because it perceives it as a place of of confinement and deprivation. And indeed, for many people. That's what the underland has been, prisoners and forced laborers. But it has also been a place of discovery and of revelation. And I, I this, as we've touched on, the, the first, my first love is mountains. And, and the first book I ever wrote tried to understand why, we, why we're drawn upwards, often at risk of our own lives. But early on in working on this book, I, I began to realize how young that impulse is within a, mm-hmm. a, a, a Western and modern imagination. It's only 300 years old. It's, it's a punk. <laughs> it's a stripling. Um, and yet we see on Everest 200 plus people queuing at 8,800 meters to get their summit selfie. And you look back to the 17th century and it's not absolute but broadly speaking there is no fetish of the summit there is no summit fever and and wow i've felt that fever mm-hmm. burning in me at times and uh, and it's still there but you go back 65,000 years in western europe and you find neanderthal artists going into cave spaces right. hard to reach cave spaces to make art on the limestone walls of those caves wow I mean, that sends a mm. shiver down my spine across time. I'm, I'm feeling like for somebody who's listening and hasn't read the book, I would love for them to just hear a little bit of like, you know, a little bit about one of the places you went. And I, I you know, and also when I first started reading you and I actually was looking for it again and I couldn't find it. I remember reading on one of your books about how you climb trees. I found that so thrilling to think that that. <laughs> Is something that an adult can still do. Um, but also I feel like you took that same freedom with your body and that same sense of mm. um, like curiosity mm. when you squeezed your body <laughs> through impossible spaces. I mean, I don't know. What's a story that you like to tell about this Underland journey if you have to well, choose one? I mean, I, I can t- I'd love to tell you a story. Um, I could just read you the first lines of the book, yeah. um, which yeah. uh, which are a story, which are sort of me, but a sort of every Underland story. I've, yeah. I'll just I've just got it here. Great. The way into the Underland is through the riven trunk of an old ash tree. A late summer heat wave, heavy air, bees browsing drowsy over meadow grass. Gold of standing corn, green of fresh hayrows, black of rooks on stubble fields. Somewhere down on lower ground, an unseen fire is burning its smoke a column. A child drops stones one by one into a metal bucket, ting, ting, ting. Near the ash's base, its trunk splits into a rough rift, just wide enough that a person might slip into the tree's hollow heart and there drop into the dark space that opens below. The rift's edges are smoothed to a shine by those who have gone this way before, passing through the old ash to enter the underland.
I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with linguist of landscape and Underland author Robert McFarlane. So there's this counterpart to the reality of, um, of the of the world beneath our feet, the worlds beneath our feet, um, which is also a huge part of the story that drew you to this, and that is 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 part of the story you tell, which is that it's a fr- it's a whole frontier of what we're discovering huh. about what is below, but yeah. that we also live in an age, as you say, of untimely surfacings. Hmm of Anthropocene unburials. Mm. Yes, this um, history or the future, we might say, overtook this book as I wrote it. That's partly because mm. I wrote it so slowly. Um, it took six or seven years, really, to to, to finish. Um, uh, but what overtook me was a sense that the underland was rising to the surface in this restless earth that we have made and are are hastening the restlessness of around ourselves now. Mm. Uh, I mean, to to give examples of what I mean by unburials, permafrost is no longer perma. It is melting and slushing, and as it does so, it's releasing ancient methane deposits. It's releasing the bodies of of reindeer killed by anthrax, and the spores are alive and in the air again and and setting off epidemics. It's releasing... 50,000-year-old wolf pups in the, in the Yukon, um, perfectly preserved. And structures, too. An American Cold War missile base in the northwest of Greenland is rising to the surface of the ice cap. It was left because it was thought that it would always be buried by snowfall, but, but now snowmelt is exceeding hmm. snowfall, and so it's coming to the light. And it, it's frightening. <laughs> It's frightening. And, the, and then there's also just the, the phenomenon that is very ordinary of spring bulbs, of hmm. flowers coming up earlier than they should, right, in so many right. places, which is, a, is, is another kind of resurfacing, which is has beauty and yet is eerie and <laughs> feels wrong. Exactly, yeah. exactly. That, that's wonderfully put, has beauty mm-hmm. but is eerie. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that uncanniness of seeing things uh, out of place but also mm-hmm. out of time really yes. um it is an eeriness it's not a horror but these quieter ones are they are unsettled there is a mm-hmm. sense that things are unsettled in britain last summer we had this drought that went on for two months and one of the things that happened was that crop marks um, began to show on the, the parched fields and these crop marks register the presence of old buried structures, yeah. which no one had been able to see, but they show up like a kind of x-ray. We're back with x-rays again on, on the landscape. And because people fly more drones now, more easily, you can suddenly people started posting this footage. And they were like, that's a Roman watchtower, or yeah. that looks like a Neolithic causeway enclosure. Right. And these had never been seen before, but suddenly this, the land was disclosing these, these old histories. Right, and... And a point you make is that, in a larger sense, this, these phenomena also, this is the way you said it, disrupt simple notions of Earth's history as orderly. They, they have a power to shift our perception of something as elemental as, as time. And you said huh. epochs and periods are mixing and entangling. Hmm. Yes. I, I mean, time, spending six, seven years thinking about the underworld, has really <laughs> messed up my sense of time. Um, it's it's deepened it. It's tangled it. 
But the other thing is that the underworld tells the future. And this, I was not expecting that at all. I should have known because Greek myth tells us the Sibyl at Cumae, the Oracle at Delphi, they foretell the future, but they do so by peering into the underworld. Right. And now we're doing it scientifically. We're ice coring down to possibly up to a million years ago now in terms of data on, in Antarctica. And we're using that in part to foretell our own climate futures. Right, right. You know, in, in a very different context um, these days, um, more the context of how people in this country and your, in your country as well are very mm. kind of socially and politically unsettled. Mm. Um, I find it useful and in its way calming to invoke, you know, what Martin Luther King Jr. called the long arc of the moral universe. Wow, what a phrase. And, the, and then what you bring forward, which, which feels to me, you know, again, it's a, it's a different context, but it's a corollary to this is this notion of, of deep time which also just sets our unrest. Not necessarily in a soothing context, but, but in fact in a more reality-based frame of mind, right? And the, the, way, yeah. the way time works. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad that's how it feels to you because that's how it feels to me too. Mm-hmm. And there is a very now to me familiar and I think ethically uh, intolerable move that is made around deep time, which I see more and more on a kind of climate right as it were which is to say oh it's fine it, the planet's old it has a long time ahead of it we'll be gone none of this really matters right and for me and it sounds like for you uh, and put in context partly by that wonderful martin luther king jr quotation D- deep time is a sharpening context for me it says mm. look at the gift of being now look at the astonishing responsibility of legacy leaving and look at what right. you've inherited in the, the wonder of this world and what what will our time leave that that for me is the big anthropocene question and it's it's posed beautifully by Jonas Salk the immunologist who who invented more or less single-handedly the polio vaccine and has helped eradicate that that disease are we being good ancestors yes are we being good ancestors what a question to be asking such a great yeah it's mm. different isn't it to being a, mm. a parent or a grandparent it's quite different because it's it's asking you to be responsible for people you not only have not met but will never meet right right it's asking you to attend to the value of what you do and plant now yep. um precisely for a world you'll never mm. see yes there is one image at the at the heart, as it were, of, of, of Underland and, and of the Underland, which, which is the hand, um, the, the, the opened palm, the stretched fingers. And that, that we know first is, in a way, the first mark of art, that the, mm. this, um, the hand stencil, as it's called, which was made in early cave art by the, the, the maker would, would place their hand, his or her hand, on the cave wall and then take a mouthful of ochre red ochre often and then spit the dust against the hand and then pull the hand away and so you you you, you leave the ghost print and yeah. it's uh, it's such an image yeah. and for me that hand of that open hand the hand of that is reaching across time that is pressing against rock uh, but leaning also into the future but also the hand of of help and of collaboration 
And I found it everywhere, actually. It astonished me. I met such kindness, such collaboration, such readiness to, 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 to reach out. Yes, that is so much a part of the story that you tell, of the hospitality that greets you everywhere. Hospitality, that's wonderful. Yes, mm-hmm. that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. I, I do want to speak also about um, language and mm. uh, the power of words and kind of the magic of words that I feel um, you surface in, in, your, in your writing and also in your investigations. Um, I mean, even the word discover... <laughs> Somewhere I learned in your writing is is it has this underland um, <laughs> connotation, right? To reveal yeah. by excavation, fetch yeah, up yeah. from the depths. Um, the book where you, I think, have focused um, most explicit. I mean, this runs all the way through your writing and thinking, but the book Landmarks, I think, yes. is, is just kind of devoted to that. Um, it makes me think of how in sacred traditions. You know, naming has this power, um, and you know, in Genesis, like the 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 original creative act is next to making order out of chaos is calling things into being by giving them names. Yes, um, there's yes. a place where you were writing about, um, I think, like the Isle of Lewis and Eras, sort of uh, yeah. an Apache tribe in Arizona, and you said sort of words act as a compass, place, speech serves literally to enchant the land, mm. to sing it back into being, and to sing one's being back into it. Yes. Well, uh, the first thing I should say in response to that fine thought is that that not all naming is good naming. Mm-hmm. There is bad naming, and naming can, as we know, be an appropriative act of conquest and overwriting, yes. and and the control of. Well, I think mean, that's the thing. That's naming. the other side of that's that power, yeah. right? Is the power exactly? Mm-hmm. It it is such a foundational act to give name to, mm-hmm. and. With names, often they are, I sort of call them portals to, to love and care. We, 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 we rarely care for what we cannot name. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I became fascinated over uh, four years in the, in the mid-2010s, uh, if I can call it that <laughs> historically, yeah. uh, a few years back, let me say, um, by, by, by Lexis for, for landscape. And, and the sense that we were making do, certainly in British English, increasingly with a a generic portfolio of you know hill field wood river stream right <laughs> a town um and i and and i sensed i knew that there was this word hoard there within the, the the wonderful diversity of languages and dialects subdialects we have in in these islands and and, and this was particularly focused in for me in the beginning in gaelic what we might call scottish yes. gaelic but gaelic effectively and so to give some examples from the moorland language of the outer hebrides um runach moim uh, is means in long form the shadows cast on moorland by clouds on a sunny day, and <laughs> and there is a there is a, a drama right unfolded out of this this two word phrase in in the mind's eye. Mm, yeah, I mean, I mean, how many you've uncovered? Probably, I mean, hundreds, certainly, perhaps thousands. There's about two, 2,000 probably in the first edition, and then I, uh, two and a half thousand because people began to send me. <laughs> These letters yeah. would pour in from around the world, around, around Britain as postcards, like, like feathers coming. I feel also that 
this adventure you've been on is also is also full of um you know the realities and discoveries that things that we're only now learning to see mm-hmm. in order to put words around it feels to me like one of those things i i don't know if this is new to you but it was new to me and just the way you describe about the connection between ice and the nature of ice and memory that ice uh. has a memory and the color of this memory is blue um that ice yeah. remembers in detail and it remembers for a million years or more. Ice remembers forest fires and rising seas. Ice remembers the chemical composition of the air around the start of the last ice age. Was that a discovery to you? I am a cryophile. I mm. I love ice with all my with all my warm blooded heart, <laughs> and uh, and I always have done. And so I. I it wasn't a surprise to me, but but delving into the science of that memory, if we can call it that, mm-hmm. was was a revelation. And I remember standing in a cold store. I, I'm in Cambridge, that's where I teach, and and just nearby we have the British Antarctic Survey, which is the heart of polar science, really, in 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 Britain. And I went into this cold store with Robert Mulvaney, a climate scientist, glaciologist, and he took out a section of core that had come up from from deep down mm. in the Antarctic ice cap. And then he took out a slice of it and held it up. And it's like looking into a planetarium or a night sky. It's, mm. It sparkles, this stuff. And the sparkles are bubbles. And the bubbles are air that was trapped when this ice fell as snow and softly, softly caught air in its layers. And as the ice gets buried, so the air gets compressed into these bubbles. And the bubbles are memory. They remember <laughs> what the atmosphere was like, what it contained at that time. And I, I love this thought of, of, of ice as having a memory. Mm-hmm. And we're learning now to read that memory, to recover yes. that memory, yes. even as the memory itself is being lost through melt. Mm. Another um, thing that I learned through reading you is that that even in the last couple of years, there's been this revelation of a what you called a deep life's ecosystem in the earth's crust <laughs> that is twice the volume of the world's oceans containing a biodiversity comparable to that of the amazon yeah what about <laughs> that eh i mean it's just uh, this this all came out after a five-year research project disclosed its findings in i think um about nine months ago and so oh yeah guys there's um Folks, there's, a, there's, there's an entire ecosystem down there which dramatically exceeds in biomass the entire human population of the Earth at present. is incredibly diverse. And it, it goes seven miles down and probably more. I mean, what about that uh, for a, a declaration of how little we know? After a short break, more with Robert McFarlane. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. Harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn about the latest discoveries in the study of hope and optimism, intellectual humility, and free will at templeton.org.
I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with Robert McFarlane. He's written about the human fascination with mountains, the old way of knowing land by walking it, and he's a lyrical excavator of lost words for the natural world. In his newest literary adventure, Underland, he explores the hidden worlds beneath our feet. We've been talking about the world of emerging discoveries about that. Another whole new, it's like a whole new planet in our midst is what you, I don't, this language of the wood wide web. The wood wide web, yeah. Would that that were my phrase, but it is, it is not. Um, did you, was that fresh to you, the, the this revelation of the wood wide web? No, I mean, I, I don't know if I'd heard that phrase before or not. Um, I have been aware of this, it's like kind of what we're learning about trees and yes and forests and and things like fungi and and mosses which were things we've thought of as parasites it turns out are essential to vitality and 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 collaboration collaboration Uh, the mutuality um, of our yeah yeah, Yeah. this glorious uh, mutualism which is about 450 million years old we think um, because a fossil photograph lithograph effectively exists Mm -hmm. from around then showing it in action whereby Fungi, certain fungi, ecto and endomycorrhizal fungi, um, plug into the roots of tr- of trees and plants at a cellular level and create an interface across which um, resources and and messages to some degree can be carried, and yeah. and then those fungi plug into the roots of other trees, and so the trees can, as Suzanne Simard, the pioneering forest ecologist who who helped uh, break open this ground, writes, uh, can talk to one another. Um, and this, you know, once you've met this idea, wow, it shakes the ground you walk on. Yeah. A, a, a park is a is a wondrous place, um, but it also challenges our ideas of of what an individual is, what an organism is, um, where being begins and mm. ends. It does not end at the body horizon. We we know that in, increasingly and in, in complex and often political ways. Mm. There was a. Um you were describing a conversation in in Underland with Martin Sheldrake in Epping Forest. In yeah, Merlin, quoted, Merlin, the the wonderfully named Merlin Sheldrake. Merlin, the, sorry, Martin, yeah, the, Merlin. And you quoted him. It was just fantastic. As saying, "My early superheroes weren't Marvel characters, but lichen and fungi, um, and that they annihilate our categories of gender. They reshape our ideas of community and cooperation." They screw up our hereditary model of evolutionary descent. They utterly liquidate our notions of time. <laughs> <laughs> What's more superhero than that? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that you're also making, um, I mean, you know, kind of circling back around where mm-hmm. we have circled around in this conversation. And I'll say, let me say this. We were speaking a minute ago about places we find hope and kind of new, new imagination Yes. For new realities forming. And I I do experience and, and you know, I every good word gets overused in human cultures, right? So I feel like now the word ecosystem is being overused. But <laughs> but it's a tectonic shift really in like thinking about how institutions work and leadership works and how things happen. Um yeah. how how movements work, how forms are changed, how minds are changed, um, mm-hmm. how we work together to create uh, new realities. Um, it, it does feel to me like these kinds of 
discoveries about how reality works, how life works, are, are, are not only relevant to how we're reimagining, I think somewhere you said historical narratives of progress, but also re- yes. remaking how we structure our life together. I hope so, uh, Krista. I really hope so. Um, at the core of them is something a bit more complex than just connection. It's entanglement. And for me, entanglement is different to connection because connection is purely a structural effect. But entanglement is, as it were, uh, requires... a a mutualism to be recognized, that there are consequences of entanglement, that if one thing is destroyed or or leaned too heavily on or exhausted, then then this will recoil, as it were. And we we have too long thought of ourselves as a as an arrogant species that can draw on the world as inexhaustible standing resource, whether that be to provide or to to accept that which we um, dispose of. And that relies on a very monadic notion of being. Hmm. And these revelations of, of entanglement are, they, they, they destroy those ideas and they show us to be profoundly porous and to be nothing but holes almost <laughs> and string. Um, I think Donna Haraway, who, whose work you will, will know, she talks about making kin um, as mm-hmm. and, and another lovely word she has is sympoesis. So poesis has that that sense of creation, of creating. But sim gives us that creating with. So the idea of making kin and of sympoesis and and for Haraway working with Lynn Margulis, this is happening at a, a at a genetic level, an epigenetic level, as well as at a kind of creative and communal and societal level. So it, it, it kind of has form as a way of proceeding, if you like. Life has always fl- literally flourished and and grown through co-making. Yeah. Um, okay, this is, this is a turn. Um, Minecraft. <laughs> <laughs> I was so surprised. <laughs> and this just reveals the limits of my knowledge that um, you you wrote a piece about Minecraft and you started it by saying, um, the imaginary landscape in which I spend most time is born not of a book or a film, but of an algorithm. And I guess you spend time in Minecraft with your one of your children or with your children? Yeah. Yeah, when I was writing, when I wrote that that short piece about Minecraft, I, yeah. I was spending a great deal of time in in that underworld, <laughs> and it was also the time when I was, um, you know, when I was I was in physical underlands a great deal, and and I just I became fascinated by it as this virtual uh, realm. Of course, people have written about how it is a sort of parable of of extractive human progress. Right. You know, you've got to get get down there and mine your resources and build and build and build. Uh, but it also has this realm, this mythic realm called the Nether, <laughs> and the Nether is what you you pass into uh, through a portal that you construct out of obsidian, um, and the Nether is, is is all our underlands rolled into one. And so I found myself sometimes I would come back from these <laughs> these trips into you know nuclear waste storage facilities or, or cave systems, and um, and then I would be sitting down with my kids and they'd be like, let's go to the nether, Dad. <laughs> so I've just come back from there. <laughs> I'm Krista Tippett and this is On Being, today with Robert McFarlane. 
His book, Underland, is an odyssey full of surprises through the hidden worlds beneath our feet, from caves to the meltwater of Greenland to physicists searching for the nature of dark matter in an underground laboratory in Yorkshire. You've also said that what started as a journey into pure matter became, to your surprise, an exploration of hidden human depths, both wondrous and atrocious. Mm -hmm. We all carry underlands within us, but only rarely acknowledge their existence. And it does seem to me that so much in the landscapes you explore, and also the science you explore around it, the discoveries we're making... Mm. Speak to and illuminate the depths of human experience. Um. Well, I'm, it's lovely to hear you say that. Uh, they they illuminate only only a few parts of them, of course, mm-hmm. and, and only the, the corners I can see when I raise the taper to my eyes. But I, I guess when I'm alluding to that sense of of the underlands we carry with us, that for me is trauma. It's um, lost memories or, or, or buried memories, in some sense. So that's, as it were, the the dark matter in, in right. The, moral, the dark matter it, in us, <laughs> in us, where um, the light does not intersect. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. And and either we can't bring those things to the light, or we choose not to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did. I mean, there's a there's a chapter in the middle of, of Underland, um, which takes place up in the Slovenian, Italian limestone borderlands, which was the darkest place I'd ever been. That's about some of the um, reprisal killings that were carried out, really using the landscape as a means of execution and a means of disposal in the in the closing years of the Second World War. And the sinkholes in, in the cast limestone landscape there became a place where people were taken to and, and, and pushed into either alive or, or wounded or dead. Um, and Bodies and bones are still being recovered from these places. It's extremely disputed, complex, highly politicized history that is still itself unburying yeah. again and yeah. again. It's an unclosed wound in that part of Europe. And that was a, a terrible place to, to come to terms with. And that, that's really where the, the heart of the horror is. And, and then oddly, you know, hope was found in a nuclear waste storage facility where we were, people were trying to do the best they could. In Finland. In Finland, mm-hmm. that's right. There's a moment where you're having this conversation with this very intriguing young physicist named Christopher Toth. Is that right? Yeah. And you ask him, why are you searching for dark matter? And he says, and I think you say without hesitation, to further our knowledge and to give life meaning. If mm. we're not exploring, we're not doing anything. We're just waiting. And and then you said to him, is it an act of faith? Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, it's yeah. It's partly because we were we were close to Revo Abbey, which is one of the mm. great Cistercian abbeys of my country. Um, and I, I'd driven past it earlier that day, and I just suddenly realised that these, you know, the monks sending their prayers up to an unseen god had such strong echoes for me with these scientists in their extraordinarily constructed in this case, sort of crypts cut into 270 million year old rock salt, um, a mile underground almost. 
and they too was were scrutinizing the universe for messages from a right. an, an unseen unknown presence <laughs> oh. Be- beautifully faithful both mm-hmm. uh, across 700 years mm. there's a you, you some words also you you said that that since before we were homo sapiens humans have been seeking out spaces of darkness mm-hmm. in which to find and make meaning and that there's something seemingly paradoxical in that that darkness might be a medium of vision and the descent may be a movement towards revelation. And it, it feels mm. to me like that for you personally, there was something in that. Well, I, I definitely was more changed and, and learned more um, about myself and, and, and I think about the world, more broadly speaking, if I can call it that, from the years of this book than, than any other. And that may have something to do with you know, being 43, um, yes. 30, 37 when I began it, 36. And when you were reading those words, I was remembering being in the, the cave of the Red Dancers, which is this sea cave in Arctic Norway, hard by a, a huge whirlpool that is known as the Maelstrom, uh, which which gives us that, that word that is now generic for whirlpools. And right. so there are two entries, one into the mountain and one into the sea, right by each other. And in what we might call the Bronze Age, um, two to three thousand years ago, um, people travelled to that hard, hard place, and they made art in the darkness. Um, red dancing figures that leaped on the walls of that sea cave, um, and they crossed two thresholds. They crossed the threshold of of, of entering the cave, and then they crossed the second one, which is in a way the more powerful one, which is where light gives way to darkness and it was in once they'd crossed that second threshold that they began to paint Hmm. and that to me i mean i wept Hmm. i wept when i saw those figures partly because it had been such a hard winter journey to get to them and (laughs) but but also time shifted in in ways i've never really experienced before in that space you're now i understand doing some work in hospitals in the UK to bring yes, nature yes. into the lives. Tell me, tell me about that. Oh, I'm glad that's crossed your path. Mm-hmm. Yes, this this arises from a book called The Lost Words that I, yes. I made with Jackie Morris, um, which um, ha- has been the wildest thing I've ever <laughs> been involved with in the sense that you you plant an acorn and a, and a wild wood springs up around it. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the simplest form of the book is just 20 words that, that fell out of a, of a widely used children's dictionary because they weren't being used enough oh, and they okay. were yeah. words, words for nature. Mm-hmm. Um, acorn, um, uh, bluebell, kingfisher, conker, wren, willow. And so we just we just wanted to make a spell book that might conjure them back. But yeah. hospitals have, have taken the art and taken the spells and, and have designed them floor to ceiling across four stories for example of um of a new um orthopedic rehabilitation hospital in in north london and also in a critical care unit in wales and and they're actually becoming part of the healing work that's done so so where young children who are recovering from uh, orthopedic difficulties they they walk the corridors doing their physio and so jackie would put a tiny mouse in each panel of the murals and the children would move a little further each time to, to to find the mouse hidden among the buttercups and the, <laughs> and the moths and um, I mean it's really it's about nature much more than the book the book is just a a catalyst for that. It makes me think of um, work that's being done studying you know in in ho- in hospitals also that if people 
have a window and can see a tree outside the window, their healing is uh, accelerated, that, they, that their outcomes are yeah. better, right? I'm curious about the language of spell book and spell songs. Hmm. There's a, a, an album that goes along with the book, which I just started listening to last night, and it's so beautiful. Oh, I'm so glad you think oh, so. Oh, it's so beautiful. So where did, tell me about that, that language of spells. Where, where does that emerge from? Well, I could read you a quick one. Yeah. That's probably the best way to yeah. instantiate it. I did bring it. Um, I mean, spells are, are there to be spoken. That's they, they have an oral power, their, their utterances. Um, and I've always loved reading aloud and, and writing t- t- to read aloud, as it were. And um, so in that sense, I wanted to write a language that tumbled on the tongue and, mm. and turned, mm. turned around. And th- this is Wren. Um, the wren is this tiny, quick-moving bird. We hardly see them in this country, though. There are eight million breeding pairs of them because they move so fast, they seem to teleport. So here goes <laughs> wren. When wren whirs from stone to furs, the world around her slows. For wren is quick, so quick she blurs the air through which she flows. Yes, rapid wren is needle, rapid wren is pin. And wren's song is sharp song, briar song, thorn song. And wren's flight is dart flight, flick flight, light flight, yes. Each wren etches, stitches, switches, glitches. Yes, now you think you see wren. Now you know you don't. <laughs> I, I feel like we've been speaking about this the entire time, but I'm, I'm curious about how this adventure, this investigation, and just these things you've been thinking about these years... Um, this is a ridiculously large question, so just how you would begin to reflect on it. You know, how this has changed the way you think about like, life and death and, and what it means to hmm. be human, how you move through the world, how you, how you parent differently. <laughs> well, I, in a way, I can't remember what it was like before beginning this <laughs> river, um, uh, river run um, because each book flows really into the next and out of the last mm. as it were so it started 20 years ago and i don't have much memory from before that yeah. but i guess uh, i mean i am as as you said at the beginning landscape in the human heart this this is to me an, an inexhaustible uh, and eventually unmappable terrain and of course the heart is a a many chambered thing and some of those chambers hold hold hate and mm-hmm. but but it also activates love uh, and grace and joy but I think most when you ask me that question about my six-year-old who features as a four-year-old quite a lot in <laughs> in, in Underland and um, I took him up to these spring sites near, near our house um, where, where the book ends, the book surfaces, but we went back not so long ago. But there, there should be a place of life where water rises from, wells up from within the ground, but they were, they were dead. Um, there was nothing, there was no life. They'd shrunk to a puddle and a, and a mud bath and... This is because of over-abstraction, you know, water that we use in our household, right. but also a, a, an Anthropocene drought, really, that's gripping the southeast of England in the longer term. And he was, yeah, he doesn't really understand any of that stuff, obviously, but he was, it's just struck his soul to see a spring site dry. And he came back um, so forceful, so clear about what needed to be done. And he has been on our case about water <laughs> use ever since. And so it was such a fascinating moment for me to watch this encounter with an absence translate itself into a sort of 
the politics of a six-year-old, as it mm. were. So I think, you know, be out, get out, look up, um, walk where and when you can, and be curious and, and be astonished by the world. Live in, a, live in what John Muir called a storm of wonder for a, a few minutes or a, a few hours each week. Enter the wild with care, my love, and speak the things you see. Let your names take and root and thrive and grow. And even as you travel far from heather, crag and river, may you, like the little fisher, set the stream alight with glitter. Robert McFarlane is a fellow at the University of Cambridge. His books include Mountains of the Mind, The Wild Places, Landmarks, The Lost Words, and most recently, Underland, A Deep Time Journey. Walk through the world with care, my love, and sing the things you see. This is The Lost Words Blessing from the album Spell Songs, which was created by eight musicians in the British Isles to accompany Robert McFarlane's book and work to conjure back lost words and landscapes. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of The On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. The Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. And the Ford Foundation, working to strengthen democratic values, reduce poverty and injustice, promote international cooperation, and advance human achievement worldwide. On being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota. 